Welcome to Deus Books. Join us on a journey into the heart of Catholicism through the most interesting reading, stories, and doctrines that the Church has to offer. Our life as individual persons and as members of a perplexed and struggling race provokes us with the evidence that it must have meaning. Part of the meaning still escapes us, yet our purpose in life is to discover this meaning and live it according to it. We have, therefore, something to live for. Thomas Merton. Here we go. That is from Thomas Merton's famous book of reflections called No Man is an Island. It's a nice little quote about living life. I think so. About finding the purpose in life. Yeah. Thomas Merton was a uh, he was a Trappist monk, and Trappist is a monastic order in the Catholic Church where they're kind of famous for taking vows of, uh, you know, the typical vows like poverty, chastity, but also silence. And it wasn't that they didn't ever talk, like you see in kind of the movies and stuff, but it was that they didn't talk superfluously. What does that mean? Like, they're not going to talk to have a conversation stuff, like only important stuff. You know? Oh, okay. And it varied between, depending on what you're doing in the monastery. But the point is, you're not talking a whole lot. But Thomas Merton was, uh, this was, he was doing his thing in the 50s and 60s. And one of the interesting things about him is uh, he, he has a typical conversion story not typical conversion but he's he had a conversion story was not a monk like person early in his life and then later changed it but because of that background because he was like a college dude and kind of a frat boy and everything back in the day um he actually was really popular with like musicians and actors and like kind of like the celebrity type people who were looking for like spiritual advice mm -hmm. they were there's all sorts of pictures of him with musicians and actors and stuff like that uh so he was pretty by those time standards he was pretty famous for a catholic monk nice yes so this the way this book works is he has probably about 20 or so different topics that he reflects on. But the, his reflections aren't like in-depth explanations. It's almost like like this book is filled with like thoughts and like fortune cookie sayings about spirituality and whatever topic he's thinking of. So it does sort of follow a structure, but it's not quite as structured as like the other types of books we've been reading, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah okay so with that being said you ready to let's do it let's dive in okay he's uh doing the prologue right now so he's just kind of talking about a very in a very like grand way talking about life and faith and he says although in the end we alone are capable of experiencing who we are we are instinctively gifted in watching how others experience themselves. We learn to live by living together with others and by living like them, a process which has advantages or has disadvantages as well as blessings. The greatest disadvantages 
is that we are too prone to welcome everybody else's wrong solution to the problems of life. Hmm. Read that last part again, that last sentence. He says... You're too prone? The, we are too prone to welcome everybody else's wrong solution to the problems of our lives. Hmm. So uh, he goes on to talk about how what he's really talking about here is like we're trying to find quick solutions to our problems. And so if you're feeling depressed, what he's talking about by everybody else's wrong solution is like you say you're sad or you say you did something to your friend and they're just like, you know, oh, that's no problem. You just got to do this or you got to do that or we should go do this as like a solution to whatever right. problem you're experiencing. That's what he's actually talking about. And he kind of goes on to expand that. But yeah, uh, he kind of in this whole prologue, he's kind of laying the foundation for how he views the world of like right and wrong and things like that. So there you go. I think that's so, such a true statement, though. Like we're so quick to listen to what the world's telling us to do and, and listen to what our friends are telling us to do. And, and our friends can, most of the time, I would hope, mean well. But if we're actually in tune with ourselves and with God, we can find that a lot of times what our friends are suggesting and more especially what the world is suggesting is way off. Yeah. And um, what when he goes on in this prologue, the other thing he starts to talk about, he talks about, he's sort of giving a, what's the word, like a, a warning to his readers. And he's saying that he, these interpretations that we're about to read, these thoughts that we're about to read, he says are basically, they're intended to be traditional and at the same time modern. And so here's a quote where he's explaining that. I don't intend to divorce myself at any point from Catholic tradition, but neither do I intend to accept points of tradition blindly and without understanding and without making them really my own. For it seems to me that the first responsibility of a man of faith is to make his faith really part of his own life, not by rationalizing it, but by living it. Oh, man. I think there's a huge temptation just to because we we don't like what we see in the world we don't like what's happening and often for good reason but we're often too like we're tempted to like oh this is this is the sacred you know small t tradition of the church and so i'm just gonna blindly promote this even though some of these lowercase t traditions are not outdated but like you have to know the purpose of them to truly live them out if you're just doing them to do them and you're just gonna like you know preach them yeah everyone should go to latin mass and yada yada well okay why yeah novus ordo is valid and so if you're just going to latin mass because it's the latin mass I question your motives. I question your, yeah, your motives for, for that. Yeah, that's an interesting example about, like, what he's talking about. And, you know, it's also kind of interesting. I think it's it's cool to, like, look back at this knowing about Thomas Merton and, like, uh, what happened to him and what he did in his life. But one of the things he was really instrumental in 
is uh, interreligious dialogue. So he was like the first Catholic-affiliated person to really involve himself in Eastern religions. Mm. So like Buddhism and Taoism and stuff like that. And he actually died at a conference in Thailand when he was working on that type of stuff. And he was very controversial for the church because of that, because he was saying like, hey, if like the way God works might not, it might not be the case that the only way to get into heaven is if you're a perfect Catholic who has been raised that way and like did all these things. Like he's, he's opening the idea that, you know, other faiths might have a route into heaven the same way, like in the same way. Um, And not and that's just him he's not prom, he's not promote he doesn't really promote that he's he's wrestling with the idea he's having a dialogue right, with he's himself. like openly yeah like yeah openly uh thinking and and applying what he knows to, like yeah he's just openly doing this out loud as opposed to just internalizing it and one of the things that's interesting is a couple years after he died that's when the catholic church in vatican ii released nostra aetate which was mm, the yep. their opinions on other religions and it was much more open-minded than people thought or people expect right. from the catholic church and so it, he was a little bit ahead of the curve in that way so, um, but that should, that type of stuff that we just talked about should give you an idea of what, kind of how his mind works and his approach to things. Yeah, he wasn't afraid to, to tackle things. Yeah. Like he, you know, and, and it makes him off-putting to some people because he wasn't afraid to go out there and look at different schools of thought and see how they could apply in the Catholic context. He, he was definitely out there in, the, in those terms. And so that can make a lot of people uncomfortable because, you know, people are like, no, this is this. No other school of thought has anything to contribute. And part of Vatican II was was saying, wait a minute, no, there are these truths, small case T, that exist in other schools of thought that are valid. It's just not the completeness of truth that we profess as Catholics. And so it's important to celebrate these uh, these truths that exist in other schools of thought to help bring about world peace human dialogue i mean so it's important it's important that that a person like merton does this yeah because i mean that that's the world we live in like we're in this post christian world where that is the prevailing reality is these all these different schools of thought and so, and like Bishop Barron is a brilliant man at doing this, and I, it, 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 our to be good Catholics today is the is the ability to find these truths in all these different viewpoints and celebrate them in hopes of of finding common ground to promote the common good. And Bishop Barron is one of those people that's very good at it. But I think yeah. that's what Burton's getting at, and that's what his 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 view was. Yeah, it towards the end of his life, it sort of and and because he's a monk, so he does a lot of meditation. He does a lot of there's a lot of common ground with his spirituality, even though it's Catholic, and like other Eastern religions and the way they practice spirituality. So he, it was a big emphasis towards the end of his life. Um, so this is chapter one. It's titled "Love Can Be Kept Only by Being Given Away." Mm. 
And here's a quote. He says, true happiness is found in unselfish love, a love which increases in proportion as it is shared. There is no end to the sharing of love, and therefore the potential happiness of such love is without limit. I love that. That's very, very romantic, isn't it? It is, but there's like, there's no end to it. Like, it just keeps the possibility. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. There's always something you could give yourself to others for. There's always something, even small things, you can do for people. Like that stuff. Those moments will never run out until the end of our life. Like, and even in heaven, that's what the saints do. The saints are still giving themselves. In in, in 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 praising God and also interceding for our prayers, like this this outpouring of love is there's infinity. Like it's yeah. there's always a possibility to do it, and that should give us hope, because when we're looking at you know our salvation, there's always you know okay we mess up we get up and we we have these opportunities to keep growing in virtue because those opportunities are endless. Yeah, I, and I like how he defines it as unselfish love. That's the mm. big key for him, is it, ha- it has to be unselfish. Like, you have to give in order to receive, which is very simple, but I think it's, uh, you know, if, if it was so simple, we'd probably have people <laughs> that were married a lot longer than they right. ended up being married for. So, um, all right, here's another quote on love. He says, love seeks one thing only, the good of the one loved. It leaves all other secondary effects to take care of themselves. Love, therefore, is its own reward. So the that's a really simple definition of love. You seek the good of the other. Right. Yeah. Very yeah, for simple. The, for the sake of the other. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard definition of love like... Uh, Love is if you're willing to die for someone mm. or something. Yeah. And uh, that's always sort of been my go-to definition, but I do really like that one. I think this one's... Uh, it really explains the love of God a little bit better, doesn't it? It does, and I also think this explanation is... Realistic's not the word. It's it's more accessible. Because like the idea of, okay, I'm not going to... The thought of dying for... I mean, some of the things that I, I love or I like a lot, I'm like, yeah, there are things I probably wouldn't die for that I still appreciate. So that's kind of like an extreme, in my opinion, like an extreme argument. But something where you just, you're giving yourself away for, the, you're giving of yourself for the sake of the other person, I think is a, is a more accessible thing to think about. Yeah. Because it's not as extreme. It's like, okay, I'm just... Yeah, and you'll never, you never really know if you're willing to die for someone until, until you're put into a right. situation. So, like, so that's hard to, you know, brain game that. But it is it's easier to brain game, okay, yeah, I can see myself, you know, giving up my time, giving up my talents, not for, you know, myself feeling good, but for the other person feeling good. That's, to me, a more ex- accessible definition. All right, this is... Um this is interesting. He's talking about love and charity. And by the way, the Latin for charity is caritas, which means love, I believe. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that that's what that means. Yeah, you we're, can you can give we're gonna it. We're going to do a Google You can give that a Google, <laughs> but I'm pretty I, I'm, sure. I, yeah. All right, while you're Googling that, listen to this passage. 
Charity is neither weak nor blind. It is essentially prudent, just, temperate, and strong. Unless all other virtues blend together in charity, our love is not genuine. No one who really wants to love another will consent to love him falsely. Mm. If we're going to love others at all, we must make up our minds to love them well. Otherwise, our love is a delusion. Ooh, that's You're correct, by the way. Uh, the Google confirmed yeah, it. Yeah, the Google Translate confirmed means, yeah, Yes, really good. It. Well done, well done, <laughs> well done. I, read that last line about delusion. I think that's a really good point he's making here. If we are going to love others at all, we must all make up our minds to love them well. Otherwise, our love is delusion. Right. If we're not loving people well, we're we're doing what we say is love for ourselves. Yes. Because loving well means not always doing things I like or when I like to do them or how I like to do them or why I like to do them. It's simply doing it for the sake of the other person. So if I'm not willing to do that, it's fake, and it's about me, and that's not authentic. That's a great point he made. I like the he uses the word delusion. I like that. Yeah. So if you want to get in a fight with your friends, next time they say, "Hey, I love this person," be like, "But do you love them well?" Because <laughs> that's important. <laughs> but do you really love them well? All right. Here we go. It is clear, then, that to love others, we must first love the truth. And since love is a matter of practical and concrete human relations, the truth we must love when we love our brothers is not mere abstract speculation. It is the moral truth that is to be embodied and given life in our own destiny and theirs. This is, I think, the hardest part of love. I think it's, I think it's easier... To, to give of ourselves than it is to maintain a moral standard. Yeah. I think because oftentimes love can become permissiveness and permissiveness is not love. That's why it's an act of, of virtue to admonish the sinner. Love includes upholding a moral standard. Right. Not just for yourself, but for their sake. Because of what that lack of moral standard will do for them, not for you. If you're doing it because it inconveniences you, then you're not doing it out of a good place. But if you're doing it out of the care for their soul and their relation with their brothers and sisters, you know, their fellow humans, then that's coming from a good place and we're required to do it in a loving way. But yeah, that I think is the hardest part is upholding the moral standard. Yeah. And I think, you know, another way of, I mean, we, I feel like people understand this with like the idea of discipline, but like, think of it this way. Uh, if I have a little kid, he's like two years old, let's say, and he picks up a knife and starts playing with it. Cause it's a new t shiny toy to him. Obviously, I'm gonna if I'm the dad and I love the kid, I'm gonna take the knife away, right? That is probably the worst thing that's ever happened to that two year old. He's right. gonna start crying because he doesn't know how to process emotion. Like that's the right. end of the world for that two year old. Yeah, but you're 
but that it that's a silly example of, of kind of the same right. thing though you're upholding a standard for the sake of them because you love them and it's like it wouldn't really it'd be hard to say you love them be like i love my kids so much i let him play with knives when he's two and makes you sound insane <laughs> yeah, it, does. it makes you sound like a lunatic and i think and the problem becomes when you translate that to adult issues being an adult you know person in the world today when you look at you know a big thing happening right now you know sexual morality or financial morality uh from businesses and, and investors and such mm. it's hard uh to maintain that moral standard like yeah we probably should be paying people properly and it's gonna i can either a sacrifice some profit off the top or i could make things cost more and unfortunately it's usually the latter that happens we people just raise prices on things but i think there's an argument to be made okay do you really need that extra billion dollars when you already make when you already have 56 billion dollars in assets i think there's an argument to be made there or in, in the sexual realm, like, you know, with, with all the, the gender ideology that's happening today, like, yeah, okay, someone is really struggling with, uh, with some serious gender dysphoria. Am I doing a service to them by allowing them to, to change body parts? At, uh, and, and, like, that's, I'm not. Yeah, and, and that's sort of been the, that, that's sort of been the church's stance on that whole thing. It's not that it's like, you know they think they're terrible sinners if they if they suffer from this but it's more of like uh it's more of like this is not what's best for you this is not how this is not what god wants from you it's right. more it's more of that and less of the other thing correct um he kind of brings it all home here though ready for this i'm ready he says one who really loves another is not merely moved by the desire to see him content and healthy and prosperous in this world Love cannot be satisfied with anything so incomplete. Mm. If I am to love my brother, I must somehow enter deep into the mystery of God's love for him. I must be moved not only by human sympathy, but by that divine sympathy, which is revealed to us in Jesus and which enriches our own lives by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. A lot of good stuff there. I really like that. I really like that he says love cannot be satisfied with anything so incomplete as just being content or prosperous or healthy in this world. I think that's the key. I like that. I also like how you talked about diving into read the bit about diving into God's love. Um, oh, how did he? Put I must it? somehow enter deep into the mystery of God's love for him. That. That stuck out at me. Yeah. Is like because that requires a an awareness and an openness to I mean that that's to me that speaks a lot about forgiveness. Because I was I was praying actually just yesterday. I was having really good prayer and I I came to this realization like I understand how people snap. I understand how people just like, like drop it and give up and just like go on and, and abuse drugs or go on and, and be violent or go on. And because it is, it is hard to keep things together. 
And so when you, I think when, when a person, when you're loving somebody, God knows that they could easily just snap, just drop everything and just, you know, die, like lean into the human condition and just go off on this, you know, binge of, of, of sinfulness. And, and God knows this, yet God is so merciful and forgiving because of that. And if I'm able to, to keep that in mind when I'm interacting with others, I think that that speaks to what he's saying about the depth of, I like how he uses the word like deep, like that's. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it, it could be a really valuable exercise if you're someone who struggles with hating other people or yeah. disliking other people. Cause it's like what Thomas Merton is saying here is you're not supposed to say, what do I love about this person? You're supposed to, you're supposed to look at them and be like, why does God love them? Yeah. What does God love about them? Because yep. God does love them. Yep. And, th- and that's the sort of unnatural step to us. That's the divine step for us. Bingo. Yeah. Because, I mean, look at uh, cancel culture. You say something 10 years ago, and, you know, now we look at things differently, and now you're anathema. Yeah. There's, it there's takes no a, mercy. Right. There's, there's no, no forgiveness. And that's not how God operates. If, if God operated that way, we're all going to hell. <laughs> yeah. Like if God operated that way, Jesus dying on the cross was absolutely pointless. You know, we got uh, Holy Week. Uh, when this comes out, it'll be Holy Thursday. Like the whole Eucharist and all that is completely pointless if God operated that way. Like, oh, you did that? Well, sorry. <laughs> you messed it up. You, you, you really just, yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's. Read, read the Old Testament if you're curious <laughs> about, about how that works out. Yeah. Um, all right. So he's going to switch gears here. And he's, uh, he's talking, he's unpacking God's love and he's unpacking the Psalms a little bit. And he says, he, he quotes Psalm 10. And I'll read the psalm, the the line he quotes, The Lord tried the just and the wicked, but he loved iniquity, hate, hated his own, or hath his own soul. That's some old English there. And he says, Iniquity is inequality, injustice, which seeks more for myself than my rights allow, and which gives others less than they should receive. I think... The reason I highlighted that is I thought that was a really a really accurate understanding of what the church means when it talks about social justice is that you're giving others is that there are people that are getting less than they should receive less mm-hmm. than what they're due as people. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's really the only reason I, I highlighted that, because I thought that was interesting. And he drew that out of the Psalms. Thoughts on that? No, I think I think oh. you said it. I think you said it. I mean, I get I guess I do have thoughts. But like with the with the social justice aspect of the church. And again, this episode it sounds like I'm lamenting against these I hate using political language in context of, of the Christian life. But since I can't, don't have any other words for it, 
this episode, it sounds like I'm just lamenting against conservative Catholics. But like <laughs> a lot of times when people look at the social justice doctrines of the church, a good amount of conservative, quote unquote, Catholics, the quotes are around the conservative, like they immediately dismiss like, oh, social justice up socialism. No. Right. It's a political buzzword that yeah. is polluting that people are using in Catholic theology, which that's not what it means. It doesn't right. mean the same thing. Yeah. Um, which is why I pointed out his definition, because it's simple and I think it's accurate. And I think that really some sums yeah. it up, you know. And to balance the scales, I'll also say that quote unquote liberal Catholics also use that to to go the other way yeah, just cer- as certainly. much. And so, so there, I've I've balanced the scales. <laughs> um, okay, so now he's talking about charity and friendship, and he says, "We can be, in some sense, friends to all men because there is no man on earth with whom we do not have something in common. But it would be false to treat too many men as intimate friends." It is not possible to be intimate with more than very few because there are only very few in the world with whom we have practically everything in common. Now, I like this because it's really good. I think it's really good practical advice. It is. um, Because I'm not going to say any names, but like my wife, um, <laughs> she stresses herself out about reaching out to friends that she hasn't yep. like talked to in a while. And, yep. and it, it'll like become like a thing that's like adds stress to her life. And, um, it's just kind of natural that as you age or as you move or whatever it is, you get, mm-hmm. get out of high school or college or wherever you met your friends that you just kind of drift apart and you're not as inseparable as you were. And I don't think, and it, and it's not because any you had any sort of falling out or anything. It's just you naturally grew apart, and I think that that is normal. And I think social media makes that aspect of life very difficult mm-hmm. because let's say, let's say you and I uh, don't talk to each other for like four years. We just naturally grow apart. Yeah. And then I run into you somewhere in public. We could like say, "Hey, how's it been?" And we could be friendly and stuff. But I feel like with today, there's a little bit of added pressure. It's like, you knew where I was. You follow me on Instagram. Exactly. Where, yeah, yeah, why yeah. didn't you reach out? If, yeah. you're, if you're so happy to see me, why didn't you talk to me? Right. And so I, I just really like that little practical advice there. Because I think it makes it's I think true. It's natural. And it goes both ways. Like, it, it's, it goes both ways. It's not... Because I'm, like, I'm in the same boat. I think about that all the time because... I allow myself to be so busy. I have an ADHD brain, so it's like out of sight, out of mind. And oftentimes I feel so guilty. It's like, man, I like I haven't texted all these people. But it's like, okay, and they haven't texted me either. So like, <laughs> like it goes both ways, and that's okay. Like yeah. life naturally moves that way. You know, I'm I've been fortunate to remain close with people that I you know that that I've been friends with since like third grade. And that's awesome. We're clearly not as close as we used to be just cause we're like, we, we've moved, we've got families. We, we, but, uh, but to your point, like, yeah. And to his point, like 
you're not going to be intimate with, with all these people. It's impossible. Right. Because they have their own temperaments. They have their own uniqueness. And the idea that your uniqueness is going to mesh on an intimate level with all these different people is like mathematically not possible. Yeah. And, and I do, it is kind of, I think it's very beautiful what he says though, on the other end though, that in a way we could be a friend to every person on earth because we do have stuff in common, namely that we are created and loved by God. That's a really important understanding for like human dignity, just that concept. I was just thinking that. Yeah. He says, uh, he goes on, he says, there is, however, one universal basis for friendship with all men. We are all loved by God, and I should desire them all to love him with all their power. That's another, it's, it goes back to that moral standard of love that we were talking about earlier. Not if I if I want to love people, fine. But that means I also want them to love God because mm-hmm. that ultimately is what's good for them. Yeah. And by the way, his work, Thomas Merton's work in evangelization, especially with like famous people and like celebrities and stuff, I think that I think that's really what was at the heart of all of that is that he was, you know, being he was evangelizing these people just by being a friend to them, basically. Um, And no doubt Thomas Merton, beneath all that, probably wanted them to grow closer to God. Like, that was probably at the root of why he was even talking with these people and communing with these people. Right. So, there we go. When all this has been said, the truth remains that our destiny is to love one another as Christ has loved us. Jesus had very few close friends when he was on earth, and yet he loved and loves all men and is to every soul born into the world that soul's most intimate friend. Very nice. Read it again. Okay, so he says, The truth remains that our destiny is to love one another as Christ has loved us. Jesus had very few close friends when he was on earth, and yet he loved and loves all men and is to every soul born into the world that soul's most intimate friend. So even though Jesus had, quote-unquote, a few close friends, in a way, he loves everybody on earth more intimately than anybody could possibly. Very interesting. And even, like, within... uh, I think it's you're able to argue from a... a biblical standpoint, even within his 12 apostles, you had John, who we think is the disciple whom Jesus loved. You have Mary Magdalene. You have his mother, Mary. Like, those are the, like, you know, he's got a special relationship with Peter because he's the first pope. Like, those are four people. Four people. Uh, He had 12 apostles. Mm -hmm. So if you, you know, but even with that, he he had a core of like four people that we we know of based on biblical uh, biblical texts. But even you know the way traditions played out, I mean, it's been you know said uh, we've talked about Jesus Christ's relationship with Peter, Christ's relationship with his mom, and. and 
like how Mary Magdalene was close to them and and John. Like we don't hear much about like Christ and Philip. Do you think uh do you think you know Peter would use that as like a way to power himself over <laughs> over the other disciples like hey I'm close with <laughs> Jesus so I'm the pope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, but yeah, I think it, but it also should give us hope. Like even if, if God had his inner circle, I think it permits us to also have an inner circle. It does not permit us to shut people off in terms of not upholding their dignity and being friends with them and loving them. Cause clearly he did, uh, love them, uh, more than anyone else could, but he still had his own intimate inner circle of of people and i think that that should be relieving especially to the introverts Uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know um but also to the extroverts that feel like they have to please everybody yeah 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 exactly he uh so we're gonna uh skip ahead to chapter three and he's gonna shift gears and now he's talking about prayer and spirituality I just ripped that page if everyone heard that. <laughs> I was like, wow. Um, so he says, I say spiritual and not merely religious, for religious formation is sometimes no more than an outward formality, and therefore it is not really religious, nor is it a formation of the soul. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. Like, look at... Uh you know, if I, I dare bring it up, like our confirmation prep in the United States. Yeah. Like, talk about a, a religious... I mean, we want it Formality. to be spiritual. Uh, and it, you know, in essence, it is. But practically speaking, it is very much a religious... What he, what he says it is. Yeah. I still get baffled about, like, people going through a confirmation and be like... I remember I asked this when I was a youth minister. I remember asking, uh, how many of you think this is your graduation from the church? <laughs> and there's like, <laughs> it's it's a shocking number. Yeah. And so that that is like seen sometimes as the end of the religious mor- yeah. formality. Um, and it, 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 you know, unfortunately, a lot of people are just checking boxes. And yeah. so it's not a spiritual endeavor for them. It's just a religious one. Okay, I got them confirmed. I did my thing, and it's like, eh, no, this is a, actually a sacrament of initiation. Like, this is like, okay, you're part of the mission now. So, yeah, that's that's an example of, of what I think he's talking about, you know, religious versus spiritual formation. Yeah, and if you're someone who believes and you personally like struggle with the prayer aspect of the faith i mean i know there's people like that um thomas merton can be a real help to you because he has loads to say about the topic and he's a monk so i mean he's kind of a subject matter expert but um but he has tons of really good stuff that really help people that i think struggle with like like i mean i get i still get this question a lot like like how how do I pray? You know, mm. like am I am I supposed to be reciting memorized prayers or am I supposed to be you know conversing? Like I, it's still a common topic, and so I think there's a lot of value in um, his reading that you could find if if you struggle with that. 
Yeah. And uh, so he does mention, he does talk specifically about prayer, and he says this. When we cease to pray, we tend to fall back into nothingness. True, we continue to exist, but since the main reason for our existence is the knowledge and love of God, when our conscious contact with him is severed, we sleep or we die. When our conscious contact with him contact is severed we sleep, we or, we sleep die. or we die yeah Ooh. that could be like a t-shirt for a metal band yeah <laughs> 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 yeah but uh i like that because i'm gonna tell you what i take from this yeah what i take from this is if you struggle to pray you should just almost contrary to that last point go through the motions Yep. Because you're consciously making an attempt to yeah. contact God. That's what um, even like Ignatian spirituality would tell you if, if you're in desolation, just keep going through it. Even if it's the driest thing you've ever done, even if it's straight up is just going through the motions like you just said, do it. Because that's the that's the base like that's the foundation if you can't if you don't have your foundation your house collapses and like i like the yeah i like how you pointed that out you sleep or you're dead spiritually yeah so um he's going to go on to um he's going to go on and talk about happiness and here's a short quote and this is probably something we've mentioned before but it, it's uh it's good he says if I seek if I seek some other reward besides God himself, I may get my reward, but I cannot be happy. Ooh. So again, it's that idea that true happiness is with is union with God and everything else falls short. You know, that it's almost hard to believe that. It's not almost. It's hard to believe that at times. Like it is because in my prayer, even very recently, I'm like, and this sounds terrible, I'm like calling myself out here, but it was such an authentic thing to say, I think. I, I, I don't think. I, I know this was an authentic thing to say because it's what I was, I was feeling. And, and It's like, God, why isn't my prayer with you as exciting as, as other things, as scrolling on social media? you know, because of like dopamine and brain chemicals. Like if you're the God of the universe, why isn't prayer with you like ecstasy? Euphoric. And that's something I'm, I'm still praying through. This is very fresh, but like, it's just to be real. Like, it's so hard to believe that. Yeah. It is so hard to believe that. Uh, but it's true though. Because in, in, you know, because I was thinking in prayer too, like, man, you know, if we didn't have, if the church didn't have all these rules, again, in my like moment of real humanity, I'd celebrate. Sweet. No battles for me. I, I can stop fighting. But then I thought, would I be happy? I'd be permitted to do all this stuff, but I wouldn't, I still wouldn't be happy. And I think that's what he's speaking to here. Yeah. And and um, you're right. He does kind of unpack that a little bit more. You know, he says, uh, 
We cannot be really happy because happiness is impossible without interior freedom. Mm. And we do not have interior freedom to do what we please without anxiety unless we take pleasure in nothing but the will of God. Oh, that's beautiful. If you can do that, take pleasure in nothing but God's will, you're that's a saintly thing. Yeah. That's what they did. You Good know? job. That is, that's your target. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it, I think that's a really interesting way of understanding our lives in relation to God. So, so don't, so it's like this idea that, okay, what, what do I think makes me happy? And then it's like, what does, what is going to make God happy? And he's saying, once you get to the point where what making God happy makes you happy, that that's the key right there. Yeah. And if, and if that sounds too complicated, you ever heard the phrase happy wife, happy life? <laughs> It's the same thing, but with God. <laughs> well done. This yeah. is why you're a good teacher. So it's like, it's like, hey, I may not want to do all these chores before right. the wife gets home, but I know if she's if she's happy, then I'm going to be happy. And so what Thomas Merton is talking about, and by the way, he took a vow of chastity, so maybe that's why he uses this quote. So that one, is that it's, he's thinking, hey, happy God, happy life, basically. That's... Yeah, I think that's exactly what he's saying. Is yeah, because God is is the perfection, the completeness of everything. So if if we're able to not just fixate on God's will, but make that our sole goal then because God is the completeness, the perfection of happiness in this case, then that's that's the best thing I can do. Yeah. That's almost getting to like Thomistic stuff. But I mean that's that's essentially it. But I think but again, that is so hard to believe. Um you know, it's worth pointing out that the way this book is structured, he kind of he kind of builds up to these quotes like we're reading. Yeah. And then he says it. That's think of that as like his his point, his thesis. And then he spends paragraphs unpacking and explaining what that means or how to achieve it. And we're skipping a lot of that. So if you're <laughs> if you don't like our explanations, <laughs> Um, get the I, book. Yeah. You should get the book anyway. But I, yeah. I recommend reading the book because we're skipping over a lot of these unpacking of, of yeah. what he does. I mean, but. what are your thoughts on on this? I mean, it's I think it's hard to believe that. I think it to be true, but it's it's in a in a practical human sense, like yeah. But I like the you know what you know a a good a good whiskey that the feeling of a good whiskey and a cigar gives me or what you know scrolling through social media just allowing my brain just to dump yeah like, it's like it's tough to like it's obvious on one sense because it's like okay if you spent your whole life just scrolling through social media you would like turn into a blob and die yes so i can see how <laughs> i can see it from that sense yeah. and and say pick any pick any good thing and take it to excess and you're going to get there but it is hard if you're thinking in like, well, what about just like every once in a while? Or what about like, uh, you know, okay, every day, but not the sole focus yeah. of my life. So it's like it, you could, it's easy to like f 
I could, it's easy to fall into that hole, I guess. Um, so to me, it makes sense, but just like anything, it's, uh, practically speaking, it's a little bit more difficult to put into action, I suppose. Yeah. But he says, if you're struggling with this, none of this can be done without prayer. Mm. We must turn to prayer first of all, not only to discover God's will, but above all, to gain the grace to carry it out with all the strength of our desire. So the key here is this is something that you have to pray about and work towards. And uh, he keeps coming back to this point, and um, it's something I, I think I might have overlooked when I first initially read Thomas Merton, but it sounds like his primary way of understanding what he's supposed to do in his life is is what's going is like wanting to make God happy. Because again, he's saying to carry out God's will with the strength of our desire. Say so we want must desire it. So it's again, it's going back to that. Kind of interesting. But yeah. That's good. Now this is this is excellent stuff. Um, so here's another quote. Everything that exists and everything that happens bears witness to the will of God. It is one thing to see a sign and another thing to interpret that sign correctly. However, our first duty is to recognize signs for what they are. If we don't even regard them as indications of anything beyond themselves, we will not try to interpret them. It's tough to understand what exactly he's talking about. What exactly he's targeting here. Is it miracles? Is it this inner sense of this is what God wants me to do or this is who God wants me to be? Like it sounds like he's interpreting those he's talking about interpreting those signs. So you have to recognize the sign first and then you have to un- interpret <laughs> it correctly. Yeah. But you have the key, his point is that you have to be looking for those signs. Because if you're not even looking for them, then obviously you can't. Right. You, you can't interpret what they mean. Think of this in like a vocation sense. Mm-hmm. What would be the signs that God is pointing you towards a particular vocation, be it a job or way of life or whatever? Right. And is he throwing you sign after sign after sign and you're just ignoring them? Or are you? is he throwing you a sign and then like... If I'm walking down the street and I start talking to someone and she says, oh, you'd make a good priest. She doesn't know I'm married. What if I just took that and was like, I got to go become a priest now. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, wife. I must (laughs) uh, somehow annul the marriage and pursue the priesthood. Yeah. If you're a male under the age of 18, you know exactly what that feels like. (laughs) (laughs) Who's Catholic. It's like, oh, you're a guy in church. You'd be a great priest. But um. Yeah, I think that's what he's talking about, his vocation here. I don't know. Right. What, but did, what did you think of when he thought of that? On the same end, though, if you're single and have been on the fence about either vocation and someone walks up to you and says, yeah, you'd make a great priest, that's, I think, a good starting point. It's like, oh, Or yeah. what if it was someone you really respected who knew you really well right. said that? That might be a sign. Yes. And it would be foolish to just dismiss that as like just like Betty right. at church or whatever. Now, again, it doesn't mean you're like, oh, yeah, I must be a priest. But it's, it's because if you discern either one, you're going to end up at either one. Like if you say, yeah, okay, this guy said I'd be a good priest. All right, let me go pursue that. 
And oh yeah, I learned about myself and I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm not called to this. Glory to God because now you have discovered your vocation. Mm-hmm. So either way, if you don't ignore those signs, but you understand the context of them, at the end of the day, you'll find where you're called to go and glory to God for that. Yeah. And um, on this same topic, he gives a thought that's worth pointing out. And he says, this is where the title of the book comes in. He says, and since no man is an island, since we all depend on one another, I cannot work out God's will in my own life unless I also consciously help other men to work out Mm, his will in theirs. Yes. That's really interesting. Yes. I think that's so true because when I... I was, this was last, this was last year, last summer, and I went on my Postinia retreat. A Postinia retreat is, Postinia is a Russian word for desert. And so a Postinia retreat, you're going off into your like mini Lent, like you're going off, you're fasting, you're by yourself, you have uh, you're usually an icon, some candles to, you know, a little prayer corner. And so I went on one of those retreats. Uh, shout out to uh, Christ the Bridegroom Monastery over in Burton. They're amazing, amazing sisters out there and mothers out there. And I went on this retreat and, you know, God basically in, in, uh, nudged me to to apply the seminary. Like, okay, cool. And then, but it wasn't until... I'm crazy. Immediately coming out of this retreat, I went home and I packed for for a mission trip in Tennessee for with the Glen Mary folks. <laughs> so the next day, boom, I'm in a van with with the teens and my chaperone, and we're off to Tennessee. And it wasn't until that week where I was serving others for their sake that it was confirmed. Like, yeah, this idea of giving myself. Not to biological family, but just to people in general, is very attractive to me. And then the the priest there told uh, the one of the mountain managers, like, "Yeah, Johannes make a good priest." And so that was in a way like a like a like a sign, right? That said, okay, I was attractive to I was attracted to giving of myself to the general people, and and a, and the priesthood is a way of doing this. And someone said I would make a good priest. Okay, that's something to continue the discernment with. Okay, like I, God said, yeah, you should, you should apply. And then I went and said, yeah, people said you'd make a good priest, and you loved serving others. Okay, God, I bring that to God. And then like, so yeah, like that's, but you have to look for that kind of stuff, and that's the point he was making. But to, to this point about the the whole like no man is an island, it took me going out and being with the people that we were serving and interacting with them and giving of myself to, to really discover that. You can't do that on your own. Yeah, it's something that you probably wouldn't have been able to discover if you were sitting alone in a room for Correct. 12 hours. If or... I stayed in the postinia in perpetuum, yeah, I would have never come to that conclusion because I would just constantly be in my head. But this forces you to get out of your head and out of yourself... And to the other. And I, I, I love that, yeah, that no man is an island. It's, it's, it's great imagery. And so he, he talks about 
vocation a little bit more and and he's and he taught he's talking about this idea that you know when we're planning for our future we have this idea of perfection we have this idea of what that means i'm gotta go do this i gotta go make a difference this way blah 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 and so he's gonna speak to that and he says and i think it's hilarious what he says but he says it's better to be a good street sweeper than a bad writer Ooh, <laughs> better to be a good bartender than a bad doctor. And the repentant thief who died with Jesus on Calvary was far more perfect than the holy ones who had nailed him to the cross. Bam. Really good. Spot right there. on. And so relevant because in today's world with like, there's like, you know, everyone is just able to display their lives and we're all able to peer into people's lives. And so we all, it's very easy for us to think that yeah, I need to have this grandiose life. I need to have this, this following and do all these great grand things. When in, when in reality, our call is holiness. And so it is indeed better to be a, be, a, a, a better what does he say? Bartender than a than a bad doctor. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. If you're a guy or a gal pouring drinks for people, helping people have a good time responsibly, obviously, or you're you're this jerk doctor who doesn't like spending time with patients, just does it for the money. There's no fruit there. Yeah. And take it further, or takes out the wrong organ. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you're you're yeah. more prone to mistakes because you're you're more careless. Yeah, yeah, I lo- I love that because uh, I I think a lot of midlife crisis would be avoided with that yeah. that understanding. Love what you do. Yeah, you know, C.S. Lewis. I thought um, he he really made that point in his book, The Great Divorce, which we'll be doing. Yeah, we'll someday short, <laughs> someday soon. <laughs> But uh, in The Great Divorce, when this guy, he makes this journey through hell and then through purgatory, and eventually he gets to heaven. And he's got an angel that's guiding him in heaven, showing him around the place. And then they're, like, talking, and then they stop in this huge procession, like this most magnificent parade, you like Macy's Day Parade times a thousand, <laughs> is, for, is going on. Angels blowing trumpets and stuff, and, and this procession's going on, and he sees this lady sitting on a throne. And he goes... Who is that? That must be the Virgin Mary. And they go, no, her name was Sarah Smith. And he's like, okay, who is Sarah Smith? And they go, well, she was nobody on earth. Nobody knew her. Nobody cared about her. But she loved everybody she came across. And this is her reward in heaven. Yeah. And I think that's really beautiful. It is. This idea that I got to go be the next, I don't know, Bono. Or Bill Gates wow. or whatever. <laughs> wow. And you're younger than me. Yeah. <laughs> I watch too much South Park. Yes. <laughs> but this yeah. idea that I got to go do all these great things, otherwise my life is a failure, that is not the case in this. In fact, your reward is is great in heaven if you can be mm. do something as simple as love those who you come across. Yeah, be great where you are now. If you're a student... Be a great student. If you're working retail, be the best cashier in that store. And and what I mean is not just like not making mistakes at the register, but in terms of interacting with people, 
Like, be the most sought-after cashier in that store. Like, when people come to the store, like, oh, my gosh, they're here. Like, that is the goal. Yeah. Be the best at where you're at. That doesn't mean you have to stay where you're at. Quite the contrary. But be the best at where you're at. Practically, too. That's how you get ahead in life. Exactly. Yeah. Um, because you you learn that way. You learn where you want to go. I mean, it's that is solid advice. So he uh, he talks about the Pharisees, and he says the Pharisees that the Pharisees had kept the law to the letter, and had spent their lives in pursuit of a most scrupulous perfection. But they were so intent upon perfection as an abstraction that when God manifested his will and his perfection in a concrete and definite way, they had no choice but to reject it. So they were so obsessed with this abstract idea of what it means to be the perfect person of God that when God shows himself, they go, that's not it. <laughs> that can't be it. Yeah. Um, so good little, good little gospel theology there. Um, so he's, he's going to talk, he's going to jump back to prayer and he says, but the man of simple intention works in an atmosphere of prayer. That is to say he's recollected. His spiritual reserves are not all poured out into his work, but stored where they belong in the depths of his being with his God. He's only detached from his work and from his results. Only a man who works purely for God can at the same time do a very good job, and leave the results of the job to God alone. What what he's talking about here is like menial tasks that are done. You know, monks, you know, contrary to popular belief, don't spend the majority of their time sitting with their eyes closed doing yep. yoga and praying. Monks spend the most of their time doing chores. Yep. Like, that's most of their day. And so I think he's like explaining that He's trying to explain the value in why they do that, basically. What do you think? I I, I think the the key I, I would agree with him that the key to holiness is in the small things. If if we can't like in terms of living a virtuous life, if we can't handle the little things we shouldn't expect ourselves to handle the big things. For example, in terms of like self-denial, if I can't say no to that can of pop, how am I going to say yes to, to like giving up that can, the cost of that can of pop and like donating it? Like that, like if I can't even deny myself things, that's something so small and mundane but I know this to be true because in my own life, like I would be like, yeah, I really don't need that pop. And like, it's not really good for me, but oftentimes I still can't bring myself to say no to the pop. Like it, it's like, it's it. Holiness really is in the small mundane things. Yeah, it really is. Um, which, and, and that is the reason that that's what a monk is doing essentially is he's, he's saying that I'm going to spend my whole life trying to master that yeah. idea basically. So I'm going to do regular things like praying all the time and fasting all the time and working all the time so that they can master that. 
And so it's not an easy thing by any means. Right. And that's that's part of what Lent is about. Like this penitential season of Lent is supposed to help us to do the smaller things, like prayer, fasting, almsgiving. It's like these these three small things. Like it's, you know, prayer doesn't have to be this this great, long, you know, just over-the-top babbling of things. Like that's not what prayer is. It doesn't have to be this, you know, you, you know depending on your financial situation, it doesn't mean giving up your entire life savings for some cause where you get, you know, a, a, a building named after you. It doesn't have to, to be this like, yeah, I'm not going to eat for 40 days. Like th- that's not the essence of those, those exercises. The essence of those exercises is to build up on these small things. Okay. Like adding a little more prayer giving up, you know, a little bit of your time or a little bit more of your money for something and then sacrificing something that you like for 40 days. Like, it's not a big thing. But if we're able to do it and do it with intentionality and sincerity and a, and a goal of growing in holiness, like, that's what's going to lead us to a life of holiness. Yeah. Um. This is chapter five, and it's called the Word of the Cross. He's going to talk about he's going to talk about Jesus. He's going to talk about the cross. He's going to talk about suffering. He says uh, the Christian must not only accept suffering; he must make it holy. Ooh. Nothing so easily becomes unholy as suffering. Merely accepted suffering does nothing for our souls, except perhaps to harden them. Ad- endurance alone is no con- is no consecration. And he goes on to explain that, like, hey, listen, you can deny yourself, you can put yourself through hardship, but you could be doing it for the wrong reason. And really, you're just trying to please yourself instead of any real connection with God. So, like, just because I fast for, like, 40 hours doesn't mean I'm actually getting any closer to God if the reason I'm doing it is to, like, impress people with how holy I am, basically. That would be an example, I think, of what he's talking about. Yeah, or like endurance. I mean, just getting through it isn't the point. Just enduring this the suffering is not the point. I mean, no wonder people like suffering is like evil. Like suffering is like, oh, we must eliminate all suffering because we live in this, this post-Christian world where that's, it, I think it's interesting The post-Christian world also recognizes that suffering for suffering's sake is pointless. Yeah. And Thomas Merton makes that same argument here. Just getting through the suffering is, that's not it. Yeah. He says, um, as he's unpacking that, he says, you know, some men believe in the power and value of suffering, but their belief is an illusion. Suffering has no power and no value of its own. It's valuable only as a test of faith. What if our faith fails the test? Is it good to suffer then? What if we enter into suffering with a strong faith in suffering and then discover that suffering destroys us? Mm. To believe in suffering is pride, but to suffer believing in God is humility. Bingo. Yeah, so it's like... 
Christianity has an idea of redemptive suffering. Yes. And as you pointed out, even even culture has uh, you know, that idea of, you know, if you get through hard times, you could come out on the other end stronger. And he's kind of talking about that on a on a religious standpoint, if you do it, if you approach it the right way. Like if something bad happens to me and I just sit there and like survive it. That's not doing anything. You right. got to channel it towards God. Yep. Yeah, you got to think about Jesus's suffering on the cross because that's what this whole chapter is really about: is trying to make sense of all that suffering. Right. Yeah. Like that's the point of discipline. There, there. It's not like yeah, I'm not just going to wake up early to wake up early. Ooh, I woke up early. No, it's supposed to serve a purpose. So suffering is like involuntary discipline. Some of it is, not all of it. But so, like, you know, if you're able to establish disciplines for a purpose, going back to what I said earlier about, like, denying yourself, if you're able to, like, go through discipline for a purpose where there is some suffering involved, then you're able, you're better equipped to withstand and channel involuntary suffering for the greater good. Yeah. Listen to how he brings this all home. It's really beautiful. He says... Suffering, therefore, can only be consecrated to God by one who believes that Jesus is not dead. And it is the very essence of Christianity to face suffering and death, not because they are good, not because they have meaning, but because the resurrection of Jesus has robbed them of their meaning. Boom. That's beautiful. That is. Because it's like... at the simplest form, and this isn't very good consolation if if someone you know is suffering. This isn't really going to help in that moment. But like, at at face value, what he's pointing out here is that if you believe in God and you really believe in the story of Christianity, whatever happens on Earth has doesn't matter. Right. Whatever hardship or whatever you face is going to go away eventually. Yep. And. And that is, that's the point. The idea that the resurrection has robbed all suffering of its meaning. Right. Where, oh, death is your sting. Like, yeah. going back to St. Paul. Like, so, in, yeah, suffering sucks. Like, suffering is not good in the sense that it's painful. But it also, it's because of Christ's victory Glory to God for being able to take something that sucks, something that's that doesn't feel good, that is horrible, and turning it into something that contributes to your salvation. Right. That's incredible. That's the part that the world doesn't understand, which is why the world is seeking to eliminate all suffering, because it doesn't understand the redemptive nature of it, I think. Yeah. And... um yeah, I think that I think that's a fair way of explaining that. Um, actually, to your point, a society whose whole idea is to eliminate suffering and bring all its members the greatest amount of comfort and pleasure is doomed to be destroyed. Mm. It does not understand that all evil is not necessarily to be avoided, nor is is suffering the only evil as our world thinks it is. If we consider suffering to be the greatest evil and pleasure the greatest good, we will live continually submerged in the only great evil that we ought to avoid without compromise, which is sin. 
Oh, my goodness. Sometimes it is absolutely necessary to face suffering, which is a lesser evil, in order to avoid or to overcome the greatest evil, sin. Look at our culture today. I mean, look at Western culture. It is exactly what he's talking about. Yeah, and and one of the and and one of the things like from a Christian standpoint, like suffering comes from sin. Almost all of it. Yeah. You know, mo- most of it, I should say. There are things that happen like natural disasters right. and sicknesses, stuff that, of the natural, yeah. Yeah, but for like all the problems that go on in the world like violence and and dehumanization or whatever it is, it's all because of sin. And that was the point that was the whole Old Testament is trying to communicate is that all these things that rapidly go out of go into chaos after at the story of Adam and Eve is because sin was introduced into the world. Yep. Yeah. There's, there's, you have to assume some risk in life. You have to assume that there's going to be pain in life. Because if you're constantly looking to eliminate pain, you're just creating more pain. Mm-hmm. And you see that in in a lot of Western culture. Like, we're obsessed with eliminating struggle. We're obsessed with eliminating pain. Like, is it a good pursuit to find ways to make things less painful? And uh, Yeah, sure. But to, to change the fabric or to attempt to change the fabric of society, of human nature, for the sake of eliminating pain and hardship, that is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, that's um, it's the plot of uh, the dystopian novel Brave New World. Mm. Is that they invent this drug that makes you happy and it makes you chill and it does everything good a drug does without any of the bad stuff. So it's not going to kill you. It's not going to give you a hangover. It's not going to do any of those things. There's no consequences to it. And so the whole world is on this drug constantly. And and so the whole point of that dystopian novel is that everything is like fake and mm-hmm. everything is like nothing has any meaning to it because right. it's like it's like, okay, me and my girlfriend break up, just pop this drug, it doesn't matter. Right. And and so all relationships cease to exist, all human progress ceases to exist basically, um, because of that ultimately is what their goal was is to eliminate suffering at all costs right it's a, it's a recipe for disaster yeah by the way and i i didn't plan on bringing this up but thomas merton one of the things that led to his conversion was that author who wrote that book aldous huxley oh wow kind of interesting that yeah. is interesting um so he says physical evil has no power to penetrate beneath the surface of our being It can touch our flesh, our mind, our sensibility. It cannot harm our spirit without the work of that other evil, which is sin. If we suffer courageously, quietly, unselfishly, peacefully, the things that wreck our outer being only perfect us within Mm. and make us, as we have seen, more truly ourselves because they enable us to fulfill our destiny in Christ." So he's saying, if you can approach suffering the right way, anything terrible could happen to you physically, but internally, spiritually, 
that it's going to be perfecting you. And it's actually going to make you more you, a more genuine you, basically. Yeah. Um, I think that's a, a decent place to sort of wrap up the reading. I did want to talk about a couple things before we yeah. left. Thomas Merton, um, not only was his theology controversial, um, his his life is is controversial to some respect. There are arguments that he should be a saint, um, and I believe he even got the very first step in the process. I don't remember what that's called. Do you remember what that's called? Being a servant of God. Yeah, the whatever the first step. And there's like kind of this like debate going on about whether or not he should be a saint because when he was. Later in his life, he was probably about 50 years old. Um, he broke his back really bad. And um, he was in the hospital for a few weeks. And uh, he falls in love with his nurse. And uh, he and he's a monk, so he's got a vow of chastity. And he, like, you know, sneaks her into the abbey and stuff like that. And, and, and so you have a pretty significant sin that he does. But, and, it, and by the way, this is all detailed in his diaries, which are published now. Um, so that's how we know all this, is that he publishes diaries. And so he talks about this. But he was able to work through that and to be sorry for it and to cut off the relationship and to seek forgiveness and basically spent the rest of his life sort of in a penance for that almost. And so, you know, for the real prim and proper, people might not like Thomas Merton because of that, because he's very honest in his writing. In his biography, The Seven Story Mountain, uh, I mean, he details his, like, days before he was uh, converted, and it's not exactly... It's not exactly someone you'd bring home to your parents to meet, but some would argue that's kind of the point as to why he should be considered for sainthood. So I just wanted to throw that out there in case people are like doing research on this guy and they're like, what the heck? He slept with a nurse. I mean, but I mean, it was part of, it was part of his story and it was something that he struggled with his whole, whole life. And it was something that he was able to overcome towards the end of his life based on his diaries. Thoughts on that? I think, uh, I'm, I'm trying to look up, what where he's at in the process? I don't think he is a considered a servant of God. Okay, maybe there were there was something where he was like up. Maybe he was just up for consideration for that first step. This was a couple years ago. Yeah, I mean the Pope has Pope Francis has, has held him in high regard in public addresses. Yeah, but I don't see anything that uh, lists where he is in the process of sainthood. Yeah. So his his I think what's going to keep him from it is his his views on on eastern religions. Cuz they yeah, are very controversial. Be. Um and so I think that's what's going to keep him other than that the 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 scandal, but I think that's what's ultimately going to keep him from it is is his dabbling with eastern religions. Yeah. Um and I get that. And it and it doesn't make or break t- Thomas Merton in any way for me. What what I what I see is uh 
someone who his whole life of religion and, and intellectual thought was as honest as he could make it. And so he struggles with things. He argues with people. He dialogues with himself and with people of authority. Not to, not, not to stir the pot, but because it's, he's genuinely pushing it and trying to understand things. Yeah. That, that's my take from it. Which I think is tremendously valuable. I and I, I appreciate someone that that is trying to understand things out loud. Cause I'm I'm one of those people that thinks out loud. Even in my like personal prayer, it's it's like that. And so I, I give great respect to people that are trying to work things out in the public forum per se. But yeah, I, I like. I mean, he the stuff that we covered in 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 this book, No Man Is an Island. I think it's so relevant today. I mean, clearly this is something that's applicable to the modern thought. Yeah, to modern post Christian life. It's it's very relevant. Yeah, I think he was definitely ahead of his time in the way he thought about God and how it sort of applies to culture and, and yeah. what it means to like, live your life. In yeah, his thoughts on love, his thoughts on suffering. I mean, all very... I look, you know, as as you were going through the book, because, you know, breaking news, I've never read the book before, if you couldn't tell. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But as you were going through those points, I'm, I was just constantly referring in my mind back to, like, my life around me, like the world around me. And around us, like how relevant he is. And I think that's an absolute treasure. And so, you know, from that standpoint, if it is at the very least, it makes you think. Yeah. And I can appreciate that. Yeah. And his uh his autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, is a uh is a shout out to Dante's Divine Comedy where everyone's heard of Dante's Inferno, but what people forget is that that's part one of a three-part journey. And so when uh, Dante's writing about purgatory, he depicts it as a seven-story mountain, and each level of the mountain that you climb up is a different one of the seven deadly sins. Yeah. And so Thomas Merton, as he's writing that that autobiography, he's, he's viewing his life as overcoming all these different stages in in his life um and i think the top one in dante's inferno is pride which was what he said he struggled the most with with, Mm. which is why i think he saw a lot of parallels with his own life and how dante was imagining um you know our journey towards purification so Mm. yeah it uh thomas merton he's not He's not like other people we would typically read, but um, interesting for sure. Absolutely. And I think it has got tremendous value. And yeah. and you kind of mentioned it when uh, Pope Francis came to the United States. That was one of the four Americans he said were of like great respect to him. He said, he said uh, Dorothy Day, yep. Martin Luther King Jr., Abraham Lincoln, and Thomas Merton. Yep. Interesting bunch of people there. Yes. Very different. <laughs> yeah, very from different walks of life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, so I, I think he's worth reading, especially if you're into the spiritual stuff. Yeah. Because that's what he's 
he's not really writing theology, the study of certain things. Right. He, he's he's it's writing spirituality. About, yes, he's writing about spirituality. That's very valuable. Yeah. And I think uh, to wrap things up, we uh, you know wish you a, a great uh, Triduum and and a happy Easter as we finally move finish our move through Lent, enter the Triduum, and celebrate then the glory of Christ risen. So we wish you a happy Easter, and uh, we'll catch you next time. All right. Yeah, peace. Bye-bye.